today we are going to be in Genesis chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 9. Genesis 11, 1 through 9, in a message that I've entitled, The Dark Tower. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 11, allow me to read to you from God's Word, and then we will unpack this together. Now the whole earth had one language, and the same words And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. May God bless the reading of his word, and may we go to him in prayer. If you would bow your heads and your hearts. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us, God. Forgive us for building towers, Lord, in a vain attempt to reach you and help us, Heavenly Father, to realize, to rely upon and to rest in the reality that you came for us, that there is no tower tall enough for us to reach you. But yet, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, humbled himself to the point of taking on flesh and coming to this earth to live, to die for each and every one of us. And may we receive that in faith. As we open your word, Heavenly Father, I pray that it would open our hearts. I pray that it would open our eyes and our minds and our ears and help us, Heavenly Father, Lord, to receive your word. But not just to hear it, but to be doers of it. Bring to mind those individuals in our lives that we can take the truths that you're going to embed upon our hearts to refresh us and to strengthen us. Help us, Heavenly Father, Lord, to to be mindful of those individuals in our lives that this very day we could take these truths to and implant them into their heart as well. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the time of just being able to gather together and praise your name. As we open your word, gracious Heavenly Father, may we bring glory to you and glory to you alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, oftentimes when we hear about the Tower of Babel, uh, this passage of Scripture is usually uh, understood to be how various languages were brought throughout the earth. And that is a part of this passage that is a key portion of this passage of Scripture, Remember that Genesis 10 actually proceed, or actually follows after Genesis 11. 
So Genesis 10 tells us what the results are of what our passage of Scripture is today in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. But I would say at the very heart of this passage of Scripture is not just how languages were spread throughout the, the earth and how people were spread throughout the earth, but at the heart of this is once again man's rebellion against God, but yet God's gracious response to that rebellion. That what we see in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, that theme that has run throughout is a theme that will continue to run throughout all the Scripture. That God in his sovereignty and in his goodness has blessed and provided all that is needed for his creation. But yet individuals rebel against him. He brings judgment but in, is in, uh, in, in conjunction with grace and there's a remnant that is left. And then that remnant tends to do the same thing. And it's this pattern of God being good and merciful and loving and providing what is needed. And those that, that receive that then sin and rebel against him in turn. And he judges that, but he does so graciously. And there's a remnant, and it just repeats over and over again. And will do so until the end of the age when God sets up his kingdom. We see that in verses 1 through 9. And I'm reminded, when I read this passage of Scripture, I'm reminded of a series of books that I read when I was in prison. Now, I find it kind of strange that a lot of my illustrations have to do with me being in prison, but I never really read until I went to prison. And while I was in prison, I played chess, I read books, and I tried to stay out of as much trouble as I possibly could, right? Usually the TV was what would cause the, the most trouble. And I will just tell you, it is very strange, but there were two shows that came on every day that nobody touched the dial. If you touched the dial, it was, it, there was going to be problems. The first one was Matlock. <laughs> the same show you used to watch at your grandmama's house, Andy Griffith. Right? Oh, Andy went from being a sheriff in Mayberry to being a lawyer. I mean, just was, that's just natural progression, right? The other one was the Young and the Restless. <laughs> a bunch of swole, tattooed dudes in the penitentiary. I know way more about Victor Newman <laughs> and Jack whatever his last name is then a man needs to know in life, okay? But in there, I read the series of books written by Stephen King called The Dark Tower. Maybe some of you have read these. Um, Stephen King, he needs Jesus. Let's just put it like that, okay? Very strange individual. He needs Jesus. This was before I knew the Lord, and so I wouldn't necessarily recommend reading Stephen King, uh, but... Uh, as I read this passage, I'm reminded of this series of books called The Dark Tower. And it's based on a man named Roland DeShane, and he is what is known as a gunslinger. It's like a knight. What, when you think of like Camelot, you would think of a knight in those different types of days. That's what this individual would be. And he is on this mission. He's chasing after this man. This guy is called the man in black, and he's, he's chasing after Johnny Cash. And he's trying to get to this tower. 
And it takes seven books, and he finally gets to this tower. He, he kills the enemy. He kills the man in black that he's been chasing through this whole time. And he gets to the very top of the tower, and he starts to step into this room. His whole life has been based around getting to this place. He has finally got to the very thing and to the very place that he has spent his life on mission to get. And he steps into the room and he realizes that he's been in this room countless times before. And the book ends with him being transported back to where the very first book began in this desert place. In fact, the very last sentence of the seventh book is the very first sentence in the first book, which reads, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. Now, what does that have to do with Genesis 11? What does that have to do with our lives? Because Genesis 11 is a mirror of the modern world. Where we are deceived and fooled into building towers to ourselves, thinking that once we have everything in place and we reach that top level, that we will find joy and peace and rest only to discover that when we get there, it wasn't what we were looking for and we start all back over again. We could give testimony after testimony in this room of individuals building towers to themselves, thinking that once they reach a certain level, they will find peace, they will find joy, they will find fulfillment, only to discover, just like Roland, that it's not there, and it starts all back over again. It's what I call the Charlie Brown syndrome. You know Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown's just a simple cat. Just a simple dude had one shirt. <laughs> just a simple, just a simple young man, right? What did Charlie Brown? His great goal in life was to kick a football. That was it. That's all he really wanted in life. He just wanted to kick a football. And he had this friend named Lucy. You ever heard the song Devil with a Blue Dress on? <laughs> Based on Lucy. She's just evil. She was just mean. And she would convince Charlie Brown, I'll hold the football for you. And what would happen? Charlie Brown would come running at the football. He'd get ready to kick the football. And the very last second, what would she do? She'd pull it away. And he'd go flying up in the air. He'd land on his back, and the little yellow woodstock would start circling around his head. The very next episode, the man just wants to kick a football. And Lucy convinces him that this time it's going to be different. This time I'm going to hold the football for you. This time you're going to actually get to do what it is that you have set out to do. And what would happen? She'd pull the football back. He'd go flying in there. He'd land on his back, yellow bird. The devil does that to us time and time again. This time you'll be able to control your drinking. This time you'll be able to control that substance. 
This, this, this time, even though you've been neglecting your, 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 your family, if you could just get that next promotion, and we convince ourselves that we're actually doing it for our family, that we're actually doing these things to improve and help our family, all the while the devil is laughing at us and snatching the ball out from underneath us, convincing us that if we will just achieve this one thing, then we will find what it is we're looking for, only to have it snatched out from underneath us, lying flat on our back, yellow bird. We see that all the way through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And we'll see it continue to go all throughout the rest of Scripture. Man being deceived into believing that they can achieve what it is they're looking for apart from God. And that's at the very heart of our text. And so the first thing that I want to show you is man's rebellion. Man's rebellion, that, that man is rebelling against God. Now, there, there's a key indicator that we see at the very beginning of this passage of Scripture in verse 2. In verse 2, we read in Genesis 11, and as people migrated from the east. Now, this is a phrase that really articulates the idea of people going away from God. Remember Adam and Eve when they sinned? There was a cherubim that was put at the eastern port of the, the garden, and they were sent east. When Abraham and Lot, when Abraham will give Lot the option of where he wants to go to take his land, Lot will choose to go to the east, and then he will face destruction in Sodom and, and Gomorrah. Uh, Jacob, when, when he is fleeing because of his deception and because of his conniving. It says in Genesis that he fled to the people of the east. It's this idea of going away from God. And so our first indication that what it is that is transpiring in this chapter is not of God is this idea that they are moving from the east. They are moving away from God and from where God had originally planted his people. But not only that, we see that they came to a plain in the land of Shinar, modern-day Iraq, in between the Tigris and Euphrates River, and they settled there. And they settled there. Now, now what's the big deal about that? It's not a bad thing, right? Find a, find a place for to kind of bed down and, and just settle in and, and carve out a nice little existence for, for your life. They, they settled there. The, the, the problem is not so much that they settled there. But that this is in complete rebellion and disobedience to God's command for his people. Genesis 9.1 tells us this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You need to spread out. You, you, you need to go and you need to spread out over the face of the earth. And here we see in Genesis 11.2 uh, that they have settled there. In other words, they're settling for something that is less than God's plan for their life. How many of us have settled? You settled for a good marriage instead of a godly one. You, you, you settled for, for, for a good faith instead of a godly faith. You settled for a good life instead of a godly life. You settled for uh, the, the moniker of being a, a good parent instead of a godly parent. You, you settled to be a, a good son or daughter instead of being a godly son or daughter. Right? We settle all the time. We settle for that which is something less than what God has called us to. And we see that ultimately 
man's rebellion is really based around three things. The first is comfort. We want to be comfortable. We want to protect ourselves. We want to find as much comfort as we possibly can in life. And so we settle because settling is comfortable. Because I don't have to be obedient. I don't have to traverse those different areas that God may call me to or lead me into. I can just settle. I can find my little comfort zone, and I can settle down into that, and I can live out my life just like that. Most of the time, our rebellion against God is because God is calling us to something that is uncomfortable for our lives, and we prefer to settle down into the comfort zone we have created for ourselves. Verse 4 gives us a clear insight into their motivation, gives us a divine introspective into their hearts. In verse 4, we, we read this. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. So the rebellion against God usually revolves around finding comfort for ourselves, but also celebrity for ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. We spend all the time and energy and effort of trying to bring attention to our name instead of the name that is above all names. And so we put our hands to the task of building towers that other people will step back and see and admire and recognize us and our accomplishments and what it is that we have done. We live in a time, we live in a nation that is consumed with celebrity. Everybody wants to be a celebrity. And everybody wants to keep up with celebrities. Who's dating this person? Who got divorced from this person? What party did they go to? What are they doing now? What is this? What is that? And I mean, it, it's really a whole culture that is built around celebrity status. And the reason why we fall into it is because there is something in sinful man that says, I want all eyes on me. We also see that. The reason why they're building their tower is, one, to make a name for themselves, but also, least we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They, they want control. At the heart of man's rebellion against God is we want comfort, we want celebrity, and we want control. God said, spread out. I don't want to do that. I'm good right where I'm at. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be because now I have to depend on God or somebody else. And we want to depend on ourselves and others to depend on us. We want to be in control. Amen? We may not amen it, but we all know the reality. Right? Prime example. I load the dishwasher a little bit different than the way my wife loads the dishwasher. My plates face to the left, her plates face to the right. I don't put the bowls down there. I put the bowls on the top with the cups. Thank you. Somebody doing it, somebody doing it right. My wife will come behind me and will spend time that I, she didn't have to do that because I just did it. So it's like we both did the dishes. Why? Because ultimately we want to control things. We want to control things. And I do it, I do it too. Don't, don't, I don't want to just, don't go tell Grace everything, you know. In fact, cut the cameras. I, I feel like this. 
this might not should be reserved for posterity, but we want to be in control. And what we read in Genesis 11 is just as insidious of an act as we read in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. In Psalm 2, 1 through 3, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, or they settle, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And ultimately, that is man's sinful desire. We don't want to be tied down to anything. We don't want to be tied to God and be obedient to his word. We want to do what we want, when we want, and how we want it. It's a picture of what's transpiring here in Genesis chapter 11. And really, it's nothing new. It, it is the Babylonian system, and it is a picture of the Babylonian heart. So the Tower of Babel and the city that is built, it will eventually become the city of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar was a ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. And what did he do? He built for himself a, a large golden statue that he wanted everybody to bow down, and he wanted everybody to worship. He wanted comfort, celebrity, he wanted control. That's the Babylonian heart. That's the sinful heart. Babylon in Scripture is always set in opposition against God and his word. Always. You read Revelation 17 and 19, Babylon is referred to as the great harlot that tries to deceive and lead people away. We see this idea that it's more than just a place. It's a system. It's a system that is built around the rejection of God's word and the elevation of man. And everybody that is apart from Christ Jesus has a Babylonian heart. Now, there's a great poet by the name of Francis Thompson. If you're not familiar with Francis Thompson's work, uh, he would be a great individual to read, especially if you love poetry. He is a fantastic poet. And he writes these words in a poem called The Heart. And all man's Babylon strive but to impart the grandeurs of his Babylonian heart. In other words, he says at the very heart of sinful man is that we want to build these towers to ourselves so that we can find comfort, so that we can have other individuals look at us, and so that we can be in control. That the heart of sinful man is always to reject God and always to embrace self. And apart from Jesus Christ, that is where we live, and that is our story. And Satan preys upon that. Satan preys upon the godly desires that are embedded within the soul of each image bearer of God, corrupting them through the fallen sin nature, right? Because we are image bearers of God, and so uh, embedded into our hearts is a desire for unity. It is a desire for community. We all have that desire to be unified. We all have that desire to, uh, of community. The problem is we all want to be united around what it is we say is most important. And we all want to find community based upon what it is that, that we want to build community upon. But what God says is that he calls all people out of all nations and out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He breaks down every barrier so that the church would be built around Christ. That he's the central figure of everything. We see this reality play out that the enemy twists and perverts. 
those good, godly desires that are embedded in every image bearer, but have been twisted by the sin nature to no longer put God at the center of those things, but to put self at the center of those things. And so they build, they build a tower. Now notice they also build a city. They build a, they build a tower. Most scholars believe that it was a ziggurat. It's like a, a, a pyramid that had, uh, you could walk up. It was like levels that went higher and higher and higher. And it was probably more than anything used for some type of uh, worship, some type of temple that they would get to the top of. There may even been some astronomy that was, uh, uh, that was involved in that, or not astronomy, uh, you got to read your, your um, what's it called? What is it called? Astrology. Astrology, is that it, where you read the Pisces and all the other stuff? Okay, they wanted to do that. Thank you. Okay. So really what it is, it's man's attempt to bring themselves to the point of God. And every world religion is based on man building themselves up to put themselves on the level of God. That I do all of this so God has to recognize me and bring me into his, his saving grace, whatever that may look like for every world religion. Where every world religion says it's man's attempt to get to God, Christianity says, no, 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 it's God that came to man. Religion says man going to God, coming up to God, but Christianity says, no, 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 it's God coming down to man. Radically different, radically different in that, and that's exactly what we see here in chapter 11. We see God's response. Isn't it good to know that God always responds? Even in our sin, that there's judgment, but yet there is grace that comes along with that, 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 that helps us to, to see God clearer and to see our sin clearer. God responds, and in verses uh, verse 5, we see that, that really the rest of this passage of Scripture, it hinges upon that because uh, it, it, the, Moses uh, directs our attention away from earth and up to heaven. That the text shows us that now the focus is not on earthly man and their building of a tower and their building of a temple, but it is now God and the sovereign creator and how he responds. And so we, we read in verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, notice that. He had to come down to see it. They thought they had built something so spectacular. They thought they had built something that, I mean, the whole world is going to stand up and take notice. And now we're on the playing level of God Almighty. And God says, I got to come down to see even what you're doing. You, th you thought it reached the heavens? Your grandiose, big ideas, that thing that you put so much time and energy and effort into. L listen, I spoke into existence everything that you had to put together to build what it is that you are building. And it's not that God didn't know. It's not that he's not omniscient. It's not that he didn't know what they were building and what they were doing, but he's showing them by coming down. He is showing us by coming down that, that it's not about man building themselves up to God, but it's about God's response and ultimately a foreshadowing of the fact that God would send his son, Jesus Christ, to come down and make a way for us. Francis Thompson, the, the gentleman that I had mentioned just a little bit ago. His most famous poem is called The Hound of Heaven. 
It's kind of a weird name to give God, that the hound of heaven. It almost kind of seems blasphemous or sacrilegious in a way. Until you understand what really the poem is about. It's about the gracious, loving pursuit of God after a sinner. See, Francis Thompson had tuberculosis, and he lived in London, and back in that day, they treated it with a concoction of opium and ether. Probably not a good combination. And so he became an addict. But yet God's grace pursued him and pursued him and pursued him, and he wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven, and the opening lines say this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. Anybody else's story like that? Been running from God day after day, month after month, year after year. Through tears, you'll say even through laughter, I hid from him and under running laughter. Upvisted hopes I sped and shot, precipitated. Down titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed, that followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. In other words, what he said is every tower that you try to build in disobedience to God will in the end betray you. There is only one who will never leave you nor forsake you. There is only one who can give you everything that your heart desires in this life of peace and joy, forgiveness and fulfillment. And his name is Jesus those towers you spend so much time building, in the end, they will betray you. If you haven't realized that by now, I pray in this moment, you know, the devil will never let you kick the football. He never will. He will always snatch it out from underneath you. What it is that you build in disobedience to God will always betray you. And there's really no point to it anyways. The psalmist writes in Psalm 37, 1, says this. Psalm 37, 1, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Sometimes those, those towers that individuals build, that, that, they, they look pretty good. They look like people are getting ahead. They look like, man, maybe I ought to be doing that. That looks comfortable. They're getting a lot of recognition for that. They seem to be in control of their time and of their days. And those three are the infectious concoction of the enemy to stir your hearts away from God and back towards yourself, ultimately him. But they all come to naught. Now, I've had the, the privilege and the honor of serving as a pastor here for, for seven years now. These seven years in January. Hard, hard to believe. Seven years. And I've had the opportunity to sit by many individuals' bed as they drew their last breath. I've been in the hospital where it was imminent. 
I may not have been in the room where they drew their last breath, but, but it, was, it was imminent to come. And not one of them ever shed a tear over the regret of not adding another level to their tower. If I could have just built my tower just a little bit higher. Because in the end, those towers that you spend so much time fretting over and building, they really don't matter. Your family, your loved ones, your faith in Christ. For a believer and a follower of Jesus, those are the things that matter when we come to the end of our life because those are the things that will never let us down or betray us ultimately. What they thought was so grand and would put them on equal footing with God was nothing in the sight of the sovereign creator. Psalm 2 verse, verse 4 tells us, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Remember verses 1 and 3 uh, of Psalm 2 where it said that they had settled and they had cast off the bonds and that they had set themselves in opposition against God and against his anointed. You know what God's response is? He laughs. He mocks because he's the sovereign creator and he, uh, he knows how all of this ends. And he knows that ultimately it leads to nothing. Psalm 127 verse 1 says this, Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. All of those things that you put your hands to and your time and energy and effort into to building up, listen, if it's not of God, you're doing it in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 says, though, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What you build upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ is not in vain. Now, I love this because we, we see in, in our text that God says this in verse 7, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. You see, God's judgment was that you're no longer going to be able to do this, but the grace was he just nudged them back to the same direction that he had called them to in the first place. Don't settle for this. Go and be about the business of being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth. We see judgment, but we see grace as well. He just nudges them out. He just moves them along. Now, I don't know about you. But God gave mankind everything they needed. Adam and Eve rebelled. They ate from the one tree that they weren't supposed to eat. He warned Cain that sin is crouching at your door. You need to be careful. Cain still kills Abel. We see that man becomes wicked in sin, so he sends a, a judgment and cataclysmic flood, except he keeps a remnant of eight individuals, and all those who would have entered into the ark would have been saved. At what point do those individuals that you keep showing your grace to, do you run out of grace and say enough is enough? Like, I'm probably done by Genesis 8. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I, I'm probably not here. There's still 65 books of God's grace to come. With men rebelling, seeking comfort, celebrity, and control over and over and over again. What a gracious God that we have, that we see, that he just moves them out of what it is that they had settled in. 
And when it talks about the fact that, that he confused their language, uh, listen, it's not just talking about the reality that they all had one language to speak as if they were all speaking English. That, that, that's, that's not the, the main and the primary thing. The, the, their main thing is they were using that one language to disobey God, to build for themselves towers that took them further away from God Almighty. The language they were using was a language of works. It was a language that said that you could be the God over your own life. So he confuses that. He stops that because in his gracious love for us, he knows that if he allows us to continue to build towers, that we're not coming to him. That we're spending time and energy and resources on the things that he hasn't called us to. And so that leads me to the third thing, Christ's restoration. Christ's restoration. Zephaniah 3.9, God's prophet Zephaniah would write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looking forward to the day of where all things are consummated. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. See, they were working together, but they were serving themselves in one accord. But what the prophet Zephaniah says is that God is going to give his people a pure speech. He's going to change their speech to a pure speech, and they will serve him with one accord. Now, that ultimately is not going to be found in a tower that is built by prideful rebels, but in a cross in which hung the humble king. Because ultimately, Christ restores all the things that sin has stolen. Acts 2.6, we read about this reality. After Jesus had died on the cross, he was buried. He rose three days later. He appears for over 40 days, and then he ascends. He tells the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. They go into the upper room, and for a week, they're, they're praying and they're fasting. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. After the Holy Spirit has fallen, they're starting to prophesy of the gospel of Jesus Christ in, in various tongues because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So what transpired at Babel where all the languages were confused, we see a reversal of that here at Pentecost and a glimpse of what Zephaniah was foreshadowing. Well, one day everybody's speech will be pure and that we will all serve in, in him in one accord. We see the reversal of that brought about by the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ as he sends the Holy Spirit that they hear these individuals speaking the gospel in their own tongue. Verses 9 through 11 go on to show just how large this framework is. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So now the speech isn't about building towers to ourselves. Now the speech is being used in unison to talk about the glory of God and the works of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ restores. Christ fulfills what it is that we are looking for. Now, in the remaining time that I have with you, I'm going to get in your kitchen just a little bit, okay? 
step on, step on a few toes. My, my toes have been stepped on all week. So naturally, now I've got to take what it is that the Lord has showed me, and I've got to show you. Okay? Now, I love you. I love you. I love this church. I read Genesis 11, and I think, God told you that what you think was going to happen. God told you to multiply, be fruitful, and fill the earth. Why'd you settle for anything less than God's plan? I don't care how big your tower was that you could build. I don't care how great your, your, your city is. I know in my heart of hearts that obeying God and being in the center of his will is the greatest thing you can do for your life. I know that. I don't always do that. I know that. Matthew 28, 18 through 19. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Go. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go. Don't settle. Don't build a tower to yourself. The one that has all authority in heaven and on earth tells each and every one of his followers, go. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Do we not do the very thing that the Babylonians did in Genesis 11 when we defy this, build temples and towers to ourselves, settle for something less than God's plan for our lives, and fail to spread out and fulfill the Great Commission? I love Francis Chan and a quote that I heard from him many years ago. He said, Christians are like manure. Kind of a strange way to start, but Christians are like manure. If they heap up in one pile, they stink to high heaven. But if you spread them out, they enrich the soil and they cause everything to grow. Unfortunately, oftentimes the Christian faith looks like us getting in a holy huddle and doing nothing else with the grace that God has shed upon us. And we settle for something less than God's plan for our lives. And when he says go, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that you need to, to move to Southeast Asia. It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to move to Utah where we're partnering with, with, with a church or Mexico City where we're looking to partner with a church. Or it, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It does mean, though, that you have a paradigm shift in your thinking of what it is and how it is you live each day of your life. It's a paradigm shift to say where it is that I'm working and where it is that God has me in this moment right now is not primarily so that I can bring home a check for my family, but God has me there primarily so I can be his ambassador and I can be a light. I can be a spreader of the gospel where it is he has me right now. That primarily my time in school 
It's not so that I can get a good education and hopefully get into to college and hopefully get a good job, is that I can build a tower to myself, but that God has you there because it's one of the greatest mission fields that we have in this community for you to have the paradigm shift to say, I'm not only in this class to learn what the teacher is teaching, but I am here intentionally to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those that are around me. Go. Don't settle. Don't build a tower for yourself. That tower will betray you. But there is one greater than any tower, and his name is Jesus, and he never will. And his gospel is worth us devoting our life to. Now, lastly, verse 3. Man, this just sticks out to me so much. In verse 3, it tells us what they built with. And they had brick for stone and bitten you men for mortar. Now, this phrase right here, they had brick for stone, it's not only just telling us what they built the tower out of, but it's showing us that they did it with an inferior substance. See, the Israelites built everything with stone. And what Moses is saying is that these individuals that thought they were building something so grand, that they thought they were building something so magnificent, they thought that they were building something that would put them on level with God Almighty, isn't even done in stone. You can dedicate and build your life upon something and with something that is inferior to the one who is preeminent. Isaiah 28, 16 says this, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Don't live your life building a tower of bricks when you can build your life upon the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus whose kingdom cannot be shaken and whose kingdom does not end. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 tells us that Jesus is the stone that is prophesied about in Isaiah 28, 16. Psalm 61 has been something that I keep coming back to over and over and over again. God keeps showing me different things in this passage of Scripture. David would write this when he is fleeing from Absalom, his son who was coming to take over his kingdom and had swayed the people's hearts against King David. And he says, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer from the end of the earth. I love that phrase, from the end of the earth. Because when you get to the end of the earth, you're at the end of yourself. You don't have anywhere else to go. You don't have anywhere else to turn. It's just God. Because the end of the earth is the beginning of heaven. Where the earth ends, heaven begins. Where you stop looking for the answers in and of yourself, your eyes turn upward and you look to God Almighty. He says, that's where I'm at. I'm at the end of the earth and I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock or to the stone that is higher than I. 
I don't care how big of a tower that you can build, there is still one that is greater. There is still one that is higher than anything that you can accomplish in and of yourself. And what David is crying out to as he comes to the end of the earth, to the end of himself, is lead me to the rock, lead me to the stone. I don't want a life of bricks. I want the rock, I want the stone that is higher than I. Because ultimately, that's where you're going to find everything it is that you're looking for. He says, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Stop trying to build a tower in your own strength. And seek refuge in the strong tower that is Christ Jesus. We are not to put our hands to the arrogant building of towers of man. But to the building of the church. Of Jesus Christ. Don't settle. Go. Go.